And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So I am recording this show in early October of 2016, and for those of you familiar with the American political process, you will know that election year, presidential election time, is right around the corner. And October is probably the greatest of those months because it is where the October surprises happen. And if you're not familiar with the October surprise, it is basically where each political party releases the most embarrassing or damning evidence for their opponent right at the end of October because the elections happen in early November, so you got to get it in right at the last minute so it's the last thing on voters' minds before they walk into the polling booth. Pretty dirty, um, reprehensible practice, but it is what goes on here. we got those to look forward to. I've got to say, I don't like to get political on the show as far as views go, so I, I can't say that this is the most important election of our time. People like to use that hyperbolic statement. I don't necessarily agree, but I will tell you that it has been arguably one of the most entertaining election cycles that I've seen in a long time. And to commemorate that, I want to give you something entertaining. So what I've done is I've rounded up arguably the greatest political memorabilia collector of our time, of our generation, of the nation, in the nation's history. People have said that his collection rivals the Smithsonian, and it is without question the largest collection west of the Mississippi. And he is right in my backyard. I don't mean that literally, but I mean he's very close. He's in Claremont, San Diego. Uh, It's actually Claremont High School in San Diego. I don't really understand how that works. I think Claremont is a town. I should probably know that, but I don't at this moment. But I do know that it is very close to San Diego, and it is a great school, great program, and an unbelievable collection. It is so unbelievable that I couldn't help but capturing lots of video, lots of pictures. They're up on Pinterest.com backslash fascinating noun where you can find this as well as all the other wonderful pictures that I have for every other previous guest. And you can check out fascinatingnouns.com. Go to the bottom of the page. It's a YouTube link. I'm going to have a bunch of great videos up with uh, James Fletcher. And let's just get right into this. Enough of me jibber-jabbing. This is going to be a great one. Mr. Fletcher, Mr. James Fletcher, thanks for being on the program today. Happy to be here. Uh, so now, do you want Mr. Fletcher? I know you're a school teacher. Do you prefer Mr. Fletcher? Do you prefer Fletch? Can I call you Jimmy Jam? What do you like? You know, almost anything is fine with me. Hey, you across the table, that would be grand, but Fletch yeah. is what almost Fletch. everyone calls me. I like that. Let's go with Fletch. Let's. Uh, so, Fletch, you've got an incredibly impressive collection here in Claremont, Sandy. Well, Claremont's the name of the city. Um, so, it's Claremont, South California. Can I say that? Uh, you can, but that's in Los Angeles. Claremont's the town, San oh, Diego. It's, it's San Diego. Oh, it's San Diego. Oh, it is. Oh, okay. So, you've got an impressive collection here. How would you describe it? Uh, I, I do describe it as a presidential museum. Mm-hmm. So... It, it has all of the same functionality as any other kind of museum, whether it's an art museum or a photographic museum, whatever kind of museum you have. And our main purpose, of course, because we're housed at a school, is education. Now, you say you have all the benefits of a museum. The one thing you don't have, which makes this thing so much more impressive, is you don't have the billion-dollar backers. So you don't have people, billions of dollars, backing these high-level, highly-coveted very valuable pieces, intrinsically valuable pieces. You're just kind of collecting them and acquiring them. You know, you, you got a hu- you got a lot of hustle going on here. Well, yeah, Charlie Hustle. That's that would be me, absolutely. And if you know any billionaire backers, you can send them down here. <laughs> I would compromise any kind of integrity for that kind of backing. Well, you really are into politics, aren't you? Uh, so the na- the name of your museum is the Museum of American Presidency. Yes. So how did this thing get started? 
the genesis? What, what, what went on here? Well, it, it really happened as a result of the fact that I'm a classroom teacher and mm. have been for 30 years now. I would bring things from my personal collection into the classroom, and very often the students would you know, either react to it or not. They're high school students, so sometimes not. Mm-hmm. But some, you know, kids over the years would say, you know, Fletch, you should really start a museum. And I try to include them all the time. And I say, well, then let's do it together. Let's start a museum. So we did. We started a program called The Big Idea. We worked on it during summers. We did community service projects and graffiti paint outs and trash cleanups, and we painted the, the toys and city parks and things. But we also worked on the museum summer after summer after summer for 10 years. And the kids were, are terrific beggars. They're great at calling people or writing letters and getting big donations for our museum collection. Well, you, the thing is, you, you got two great advantages there. Number one, they're all your docents, essentially, and they're all free. Right. Uh, so that's a that's a big advantage right there. Sure. The second advantage um, is that who would say no to a kid? I, I don't like kids, so I would absolutely. I enjoy saying no to them, <laughs> but most people, especially people with a soul or a heart, will they'll, they won't say no. So you can ask for anything, and they're going to hand it over to you. Very true. To uh, use that to your advantage. Uh, I've always tried to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I try to play every end against the middle. That's just the way of it. <laughs> right. And really putting kids on the phone or having them write actual paper letters to collectors was the way that we started. The genesis of the collection came from really generous donations from collectors and dealers all over the country. Now, when you do that, when you have them write letters, I know they're high school students, but mm-hmm. you have them put like backwards K's or use cutesy language to kind of, you know, encourage a little extra dough? No. None of that? No, no, no. cheap tricks? No, because they're high school kids. Right. And backwards Ks <laughs> would just mean that, you know, this is some, you guys weren't doing a good job. some pretty awful teaching. <laughs> so now where does some of this money come from that you guys have used to expand your museum? Well, we, we started a foundation. Mm-hmm. So we have a 501c3, the Claremont High School Foundation. And I was in on the genesis of that. And we... We have written and gotten some small grants, but primarily we get a large number of donations, not of money, but of things from dealers in political Americana. There are probably two dozen, um, yeah, they're almost all men, but who, who do it full time. They're professional Americana dealers in the country. And there are a couple of big auction houses that have Americana sections or, or pieces to them. So there's some some really good stuff out there and the the internet and especially eBay have made much more material pretty widely available and, and relatively widely known. But we get huge donations. Well you know you might bring up a good point there because I imagine, you know, the with because this really started what, like the mid '90s, right? Is that when you guys kind of hit this yes, full force? Exactly. And that was, you know, right in the dot bomb, the dot bomb, Freudian <laughs> slip the dot there. Com yeah, bomb. The, the dot, go, <laughs> dot com bomb. But that was when eBay kind of exploded, no pun intended. Very and true. that made this extremely possible, uh, which I don't know that it was before. It may not have been feasible, you know, in the '80s, maybe ten years before that. Well, the work that we did in, and we started. You're right in the early '90s. The beginning of that was really before I learned how to use eBay, and Mm. eBay still requires a monetary investment, which I was happy to make until my wife found out I was using the credit card. But (laughs) asking somebody, asking a a collector, we used to do that seriously the old-fashioned way. We had a list of all of the members of the American political items collectors, and, you know. Is that a thing, the American political items collectors? Yeah. It's a big thing, actually. Yeah, the APIC, buddy. APIC. Yeah, some of us say APIC. APIC. Not I. <laughs> but they they used to print uh, a member's guide. And so there's a roster of 12,000 active members. And we wrote every one of them a letter. And they listed all of their collecting specialties. So we would write them a personalized letter. Can you send us one button from, you know, Johnson or one button from Kennedy or whoever you happen to collect. Yeah. And many of them did. 
So when you so like I look around here and you know it's, it's beautifully displayed, but what I don't see are little plaques that say you know thanks to the you know member this person. Like and if you go to the Getty or something, they'll say on loan from the Hearst Foundation or something like that. No, absolutely. Do right. you ever give them credit for handing this stuff over? Yes, um, we did in in our our older facility. Mm-hmm. We had a huge donation by one man who lived in upstate New York. He wrote us back. One of my students wrote him a letter. He called, wanting to speak to that, the student who had written the letter. I went and got the kid, put him on the phone. and Whatever, by any means. He was a Woodrow Wilson collector. Really? And he, his children had no interest, and he was getting older. And he said, if someone will come pick it up, I'll give you my whole collection. Wow. I walked into the principal's office and I said, "Book me a flight." Didn't <laughs> I said, "Alan, I have to go to upstate New York to pick up a collection." And he said, "Go, get wow. on a plane." I, those were the days. Yeah. That that's no more going to happen now than I'm going to fly to the moon. But <laughs> it, I went and I met him and picked up the collection. I helped arrange for an appraisal, and he got a tax donation, even though he didn't really want one. Yeah, and I brought back almost a thousand pieces of Woodrow Wilson, including the first and second inaugural medals. Holy cow. Incredible collection. That is incredible. And all you did is ask. You said, hey, we asked give for me stuff. one duplicate button and we got a thousand. Wow. That is the power. You know, it's really the power of just simply asking because if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. If you do ask, the answer is quite often no. <laughs> right, more often than not. But this time it was a, a resounding yes. That is quite a payoff. Robert Schwabacher, I know you wanted to ask. Yeah, Robert Schwabacher. Yeah. He's the guy who donated it all? Right, we called it the Schwabacher Collection in a, a just a burst of originality. Right. He was, yeah, he's real, a really nice man. First time I'd ever driven in snow. No kidding. Oh, snow's amazing. It's really dangerous, but it's... I know. I love snow now. We go to the Sierras all the time. Yeah. I love snow, but that that upstate New York drive, it's like driving in a Christmas card, baby. <laughs> it is. So where's the Schwabacher collection now? Uh, part of it is in our small museum room. Uh-huh. We have uh, a number of the posters and stuff framed and around in the library, and we have the... One of the inaugural medals is on display in the library. The other one's in the vault. Has he been here? No. Robbie S. hasn't come down to check it out? No. Uh-uh. From up by Poughkeepsie? Yeah, that guy. Yeah, no, that guy. N- no, no, no. He didn't make a trip out. He should. I know. We should We should send him a ticket. Yeah. Let's, all right. I want to ask all my listeners to send me $1, and we're going to get Robert Schwabacher out here to check out the incredible collection that's been gathered together. Um, now, so that represented a thousand pieces. Now that is actually a significant part. You have forty thousand, four K, forty large pieces, individual pieces, right, in this collection? Yes, right. Different pieces. I mean, I'm not counting, you know, a thousand. If I have a thousand of the same button. Oh, okay. So you're not doing. Oh, that's not a cheat. So you have a four thousand, forty. 000, I'm sorry, forty thousand original. Items, presidential items. Yeah, I don't cheat at this. I only cheat at golf. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to. Uh, that's um, that's amazing. If my math is correct, I did the math here really quickly. I won't, you did the math. I did the math because you've been doing this. You've been doing. You've got forty thousand pieces. Uh, this is a collection over forty years, right? That you've been collecting. That's an average of three acquisitions a day. How do you maintain that level of acquisition? Because they all come in October, November, December of every year. That doesn't explain anything. Would, oh, because of the presidential election? or No, because of tax season. You make a donation oh. right before the end of the year, and then you get a tax write-off. Now, Schwabacher okay. didn't want a tax write-off, but these guys so who are said, professional dealers, yeah. they are absolutely. And if I don't have to put valuations on, that's all up to them. They get an outside appraisal. And they deal with their tax guys, and I deal with all their buttons. Wow. So that's a, so it's like a win-win for everyone. Absolutely. There's a button manufacturer, one of the biggest in the country, and he's in Ohio. He drove his truck and his huge trailer out with, are you ready? Mm-hmm. 195,000 buttons in barrels. Whoa. Whoa. That's ridiculous. For you? 
just for me. Where do you keep these barrels of buttons? Um, some of them I keep in the dumpster. <laughs> we can't use – there are lots of buttons that we simply can't use because yeah. they didn't win the election. And it's a presidential museum. It's not a, oh, an see. every candidate who ran museum. That would be ridiculous. And then, of course, uh, doubles and triples and, you know, 4,000s. We can't use that many duplicates, so we trade them or sell them in order to raise money to to buy new items for the collection. See, that would make sense if you had the duplicates. Trading or selling them would seem like... The dumpster seems like uh, the easy way out, but the other way seems, well, monetarily and advantageous from a monetary standpoint. Well, the, the dumpster... Yeah, of which I speak is literally a hundred feet from us, where as we sit here, and there are currently about five or six thousand personalized Obama buttons. They have every name you could possibly think of that says, "I'm Cat and I'm <laughs> in in 2012." <laughs> oh, all right, that's fair. All right, the, I get the market. The barrel <laughs> is in the dumpster. I swear, I'll show you right after this. I'm gonna get pictures of it. We're gonna put them up on the website. Oh my. A barrel of Obama buttons. Now, I imagine the trade-in value for a I'm with Cat Obama button is probably pretty low. Pretty low, yes. Yeah. For a while, um, I believe that I had a corner on the market of John Kerry for president buttons. <laughs> really? I'm, I'm pretty sure. Now, you do say that you, it is a presidential museum. However, it is very clear with even the most sweeping of glances that you are also very interested in the campaigns. Oh. which includes both a winner and a loser. So some of these things would be very important to the museum. You, you would be pretty hard-pressed to find buttons for William Jennings Bryan in my museum. But we do have some Bryan pieces. We have a couple of posters. We have a soap baby for William Jennings Bryan. And, you know, James Cox? No, I don't have a Cox button. I really don't. I don't have Dewey buttons or Landon buttons or... I just don't. None of that stuff. None of that stuff. Now, if a president, as did Richard Nixon in 1960, lost and then won a subsequent election, I'll absolutely keep Nixon buttons from 1960. Mm-hmm. They're, they're some of my favorite buttons. But if Nixon hadn't won in 1968 and again in 72, the 1960 stuff wouldn't be in the museum. Be in the dumpster next to the Obama buttons. Might be, yeah. Uh, so with... Um now, now you, let's let's dig into your head a little bit here, because now we've talked about how this museum kind of came to be. Now that's important, but this this also is this museum is an extension of your personal kind of uh, collection, right? Like this this is your personal drive. How did why did you start doing this? Well, I was fascinated by politics. Politics is really life. I mean, mm-hmm. I think everyone listening would know that. I hope so. That's actually very true. Life is. I was just telling someone yesterday that life is politics. It's the rules. It's the social rules yeah. of engagement, essentially. It's the art of getting what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was in junior high the first time that Nixon, not the first time he ran, but in 68 mm-hmm. when he ran, and n- not particularly interested. I was in elementary school, but in high school, he was running in 1972, and I tugged on mommy's apron strings and said, will you drive me down to the Republican headquarters? And they just gave me buckets (laughs) of Nixon buttons, thinking that I was going to be the kid who was going to go pass out Nixon buttons. Uh, And Nixon became the heart of my collection. He was just so weird. He was (laughs) edgy and creepy and crazy and smart and the history he just bled history it was incredible yeah you know facing off against khrushchev and opening china and just all all of the fascinating things that dick nixon did i just i love nixon now so you like him as a character essentially the character of nixon right and character is the perfect word not everybody recognizes that but yes absolutely not that Nixon's character was something that I was intending to emulate, but right, right. He, was, he was a force of nature. I mean, who wears black socks and Florsham Imperial Cordovans when you walk on the beach? I mean, Nixon, <laughs> it's, he's amazing. Well, you, know, you mentioned this, and this kind of jogged my memory because it's been a while since I've 
looked into American history, especially, especially presidential history, but he ran several times. I mean, he was basically like, sure. I'm becoming president, whether you want me or not, essentially. Right, absolutely. Well, he ran, of course, in 1960 against Kennedy. And yeah. it, that was an extremely close election. Yeah. Most people don't realize how close that election really was. If one person per precinct had changed their vote from Kennedy to Nixon, Nixon would have won. One person per precinct. So wow. it, was, it was a near thing. And he ran for governor of California in 1962, coming off that loss as in, for the presidency. And he lost that election as well. And after that election, he made a speech to the press. He hated the press. He feared and misunderstood the press, too. And the feeling was mutual. He said, I'm, I'm out, I'm going back to the practice of law, I'm out of professional politics, and you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Mm-hmm. And he stayed out for the, the course of a one presidential cycle when Goldwater ran as the Republican nominee and just self-destructed. And he came back in 68 against Um, Hubert Humphrey, because LBJ had refused to accept his party's nomination because he was just shredded over Mm -hmm. Vietnam. And he beat Humphrey. Hmm. And that's how he got in again. That's right. That's how he got in. That's how he got in. Yeah, I guess that's how he got in. He is... But the one thing about the, the 1960 election is, although he, he did win in the 68 one, the 1960 one, especially the debate with Kennedy historically speaking, was probably, outside of Watergate, <laughs> a very significant historical historical achievement. Sure. Um, let's talk about that, the, the televised debates, because that changed everything. I mean, the, we're the seeing the ripples of that today. Oh, yeah. We de- we've lived with that now. Yeah. I mean, look at how many Republican debates there were just when it was the primary season. Right. The, the, the history on that, and it's been vetted now for all these years, 25 plus years, not since the debate, but since the the historical sampling was done, people who heard the debate on the radio but didn't see it on television favored Nixon. They believed that Nixon had won overwhelmingly. Those people who saw it on television said, Kennedy, Kennedy's the one. And even though they were almost the same age, Mm -hmm. Nixon looked um, tired. Mm-hmm. He looked like he had really been worn down by the campaign or by the, the you know, apprehension about the debate. And he, has, he had a very heavy beard. So he's the kind of guy who had a 5 o'clock shadow mm-hmm. at 10 o'clock in the morning. Right. So even with the bit of makeup that they put on him, he refused most of the makeup. Yes, yeah, I thought he refused most makeup. So most he was of it. He took a little bit of pancake. <laughs> yeah, he was. But his five o'clock shadow came through, and Kennedy said, makeup, you bet. (laughs) And he looked great. He looked young and vigorous, and he was, you know, we know now he was not particularly healthy. You know, his, the back injury that he suffered Mm -hmm. in the war and combined with the Hodgkin's disease that he had. But that debate, that that definitely turned the tide. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just funny from a historical standpoint, like how much today we learned from that, from Nixon's mistakes. <laughs> sure. You know, we learned from those, and no one will make them again. Yeah, the answer is always say yes to makeup. <laughs> I always do. Uh, now, when we talk, you're talking about buttons a lot, and I, I think it's kind of gone to the wayside now. Maybe I could be wrong, but I don't see a lot of people wearing campaign buttons. But for a long period of time, these were very, very popular. Uh, and they started, I believe you told me, in 1896 with McKinley. Yes, exactly right. So how did this come into being? Why buttons? And why then? Well, people had worn badges in honor of their their presidential candidates since, really, since Buchanan in the 1850s. What do you mean bad? Now, what do you mean badges? Uh, made out of brass. So, oh, like a police like, badge? Uh, some of them were at that That's big. Heavy and, duty. Uh, and even huger. Really? Yes, uh, parade badges, even for McKinley in the, the 1890s, brass parade badges, they were as big around as a, a small 
like plate that you would eat off of. Like the stuff you put on like prize horses when they win races like that? Um, almost like that, yeah. It, it looked like a combination of a military medal and that the medal that would go around the horse's neck, yeah. Wow, okay. Huge. So this Six is... inches around, easy. Wow, do you have any of these? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. All right, we'll get a picture of these. So now, so that was pre-1896. Right. So what happened? In well, that celluloid. Mm -hmm. Celluloid was invented. It became commercially available in 1896, coincident with the, the first McKinley campaign against William Jennings Bryan. And McKinley buttons turned out to be very important to McKinley because of the way that he chose to conduct his campaign. It was called the front porch campaign. So he sat on, literally, in a rocking chair on his front porch in Canton, Ohio, and he said, if the voters want to talk to me, they can come to me. He didn't go out. There was no whistle-stop campaign. There wasn't a, a huge media blitz, even in the newspapers, which was the only media of the day. Hmm. He, he didn't bother to do any kind of traveling, even around Ohio. That seems super lazy. Incredibly lazy or brilliant. <laughs> he won. <laughs> right. So arrogant, right. lazy, or brilliant. Yeah. Huh. And so this kind of, so this changed the tide as far as promotional material uh, that people wear. It did. Um, so that's how, I mean, that's essentially, that was his media blitz in a way. There are, there are literally a thousand different types of McKinley buttons that are still available to collectors. So, and people wore them. And there's jewelry intended for women to wear. Even before, I mean, this is 25 years before women had the right to vote. Hmm. But there's, there's a big line of McKinley jewelry. There's jewelry for every candidate since McKinley. Wait, hold on. What's McKinley jewelry? What did that look like? It, it looks like a little like brass. A necklace? Sometimes they're gold-plated. They can be necklaces. They're more often pins, like brooch pins. Oh, I see. Okay. And they have the same thing, except they'll have um, a gold edging around them. And, you know, they're campaign buttons. For they meant like a Vera Wang-style, like, <laughs> like jewelry line. Like that. Okay. Although some of the Richard Nixon jewelry from the 70s is some pretty funky stuff. Really? Yeah, they went out of the country to India and had embroidered pins made with embroidered, richly embroidered elephants that have Nixon's name on them. And wow. And there's some crazy stuff, crazy campaign stuff. So now, when you, we got off topic for a second because you love the Nixon Kennedy. So that was kind of what got you into this, is Richard Nixon as a, as a character. Yes, yes, uh, indeed. So we almost glossed over this very important, probably the most important thing about that campaign, and that would be the historically significant Kennedy-Nixon Mad Magazine. Does that exist in your, in your it collection? Does. It does. One of my favorite items, absolutely. So did you, why is it your favorite item, one of them? Well, first of all, lifelong Mad Magazine fan. And the fact that Claremont High School still has a school subscription to Mad is mostly due to <laughs> the fact that I pushed. But the... The Mad Magazine that has both Kennedy and Nixon being congratulated as having won the 1960 election, that's just an enormously fascinating piece to me. I'm actually surprised they didn't do that in the other elections, especially the 2001, when, when someone declared Gore the winner and then Bush the winner, when the world actually did that. I'm surprised Mad didn't like bring that back, because it's a pretty funny little shtick. That would be. That'd be great. Uh, now, you talked about women's... Um, Women's articles, uh, you know, stuff that they would wear, wardrobe, costumes, that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, is there a long history of that, of getting the women involved? Um, certainly from the women's rights movement, the suffragette movement in the early part of the 20th century, women wore banners like, uh, like beauty pageant sashes okay. that, that mostly said votes for women. And they carried signs, and they wore um, hat bands, paper hat bands that, or embroidered hat bands with votes for women. But th this was a, a point where half the population that is now eligible to vote was unable to in this country. Mm -hmm. So they, they were pushing to get the right to you know, exercise their franchise just like their male counterparts. 
they had a pretty t- tough time. I remember reading a bunch of stuff about the women's suffrage movement, and I didn't realize how kind of brutal it was for women to get the right to vote. Um, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. I mean, almost sure. as bad as the civil rights movement. Um, if not worse in some cases. Absolutely. Uh, I was pretty, I was kind of blown away by that. I thought there'd be backlash, obviously, for the so- if you take the social eye of the time. Um, but I didn't know it was going to be as bad as that. So it's actually surprising that um, that more women weren't catered to after the movement and why they weren't, aren't more involved now, in a sense. Well, one of the, the things about turning it around is after 1920, when women had a constitutional right to vote, mm-hmm. um, they started a temperance movement. Mm-hmm. So, and that ultimately, Carrie Nation and going the Anti-Saloon League and all of those. So it was mostly women. Mm-hmm. The, the YWCA was started as a, a temperance league, mm-hmm. an anti-alcohol league. And that's really how we got prohibition, was all of right. those, those movements coming together. And it was primarily fueled by the passion of women and their hatred of the abuse of alcohol that they were seeing in their men folk. Right. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because that actually had another major effect on the world economy uh, was the was the temperance movement. Um, in, in another podcast that I do, uh, The Stell Experience, there was a, a guy who was there who explained the whole history of how we got gasoline as our fuel instead of alcohol, which stemmed from that movement where people were so against alcohol, when alcohol was in fact a, cl- a, a higher potency, cleaner burning fuel, but because of this hatred for a- alcohol, we ended up using gasoline in our cars, which exists to this day. Um, so th- th- that is a, that's a very, I mean, that's a very powerful moment in history, again, that we feel the effects of later on. You bet. This is the kind of stuff that I think is amazing for you as a teacher to be able to, if you hand that kind of knowledge to kids, you don't really have that perspective until you get older and you realize like, oh, wow, that stuff that went on back then that people didn't think was a big deal, we still feel the effects today, you know? Right. This is, this is, your, this is your whole world. Well, that's the key to getting somebody excited about learning history. You know, you sit them down in a history class and you talk about the Battle of Angincourt. Right. It's yeah, <laughs> just not happening, right. you know. The, well, but don't you understand? The English introduced the U-bow against the French. <laughs> Go, What's a U-bow? I, I don't know. I don't understand. Yeah. So if, if you can connect past to present in some meaningful way, that gives you a little bit of a leg up. Yeah. You know, history education with a teenager Mm. The history had better come to the table hot and preferably in flames. Right. But that's what you do here. I mean, so you actually let people touch these artifacts, and, I mean, that gets them engaged, you know, in a tactile sense. Well, I insist that they touch the artifacts. I mean, you must touch in this museum. Wow. Because that's the only way that you, you have a chance to interact with the material culture of presidential history. Yeah. You have to touch it. Yeah. And most of these items in the collection were made for mass consumption. They're right. not, you know, super fancy pieces, most of them. They're not pieces that were just made for the idle rich. Mm-hmm. They're, they were made for you and me. The commoners. The common folk. The, the people's champions. You look know? at yeah. Look That's at us. us. We're, we're kind of man of the people. Oh, I knew that. So now speaking of man of the people... Let's talk about, I want you to set me straight on this. From what I understand, you guys were this close. I'm holding my thumb and my index finger very close together. You were this close to getting the American President movie set. Oh, wow. And what happened? I was disappointed when I read this. Well, I'm, I'm glad this is just audio because I'm feeling He's tearing a, up right a, now. <laughs> a warm tear. Uh, the movie sets were terrific. I mean, they mm-hmm. were, it was the most, one of the most amazing films ever. Mm-hmm. And I picked up the phone, I called, I called Castle Rock, and I got shifted to three or four different folks, and somebody said, yeah, you know, we don't have any plans to use any of the set materials, but there's a problem. It, it takes up a 10,000 square foot warehouse, mm-hmm. and they're all folded up. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I really, I don't, I don't have a place to put them, but I would love to use them and have a, the museum housed inside of the sets from the White House. Great they, idea. They had the East Room and certainly the Oval Office. It would have been incredible. Mm-hmm. It would have been, you know, full-scale nice. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, you got it. 
we'll work it out. We'll figure out, we can store them for you for a little while until you figure out where to put them. And I'm, you know, running around like a chicken with his head cut off trying to figure where I'm going to put them. And then they decided to make West Wing. Mm -hmm. And Aaron Sorkin, you know, he had written American President and he was going to write and produce West Wing. And, you know, what could I say? West Wing's my favorite TV show of all time. Yeah. Well, what about when that show was over? Yeah, then the stuff was pretty raggy. Uh -huh. And they they used it for other things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they've they've pieced it out now, and they've used it in some films. And I was actually on that set as well. They had it open on one of the stages. You're killing me. I'm sorry. It's a nice set. It was a really nice set. I bet it was. Uh, so now speaking of the American president, who is your favorite president? Are you allowed to take sides? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I actually favor an anti-federalist. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. His name is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, it's not exactly digging very deep to pick him as your favorite. Nope. He's, um, he's twisty in his own way. Mm -hmm. Not Nixon twisty, but... No. You are. <laughs> he was um, certainly the most intelligent person who was ever in the White House. John Kennedy was hosting a dinner with 12 Nobel laureates in the, the mural room, I think. And when he got up to make his toast, he said, this is the greatest assemblage of intelligence in this room since Thomas Jefferson dined here alone. Wow. <laughs> Good <laughs> so, line. Yeah, a slap and a pat, both. Yeah. <laughs> Jefferson, he didn't think very much of the presidency. He wasn't too impressed by the fact that he was, in fact, the third president of the United States. He, he was more impressed with himself for his other accomplishments. So his gravestone at Monticello mm -hmm. says, Thomas Jefferson, writer, author of the Declaration of Independence, architect of the University of Virginia. It doesn't say President of the United States on it. I mean, maybe that was just a given, but right. it, it kind of says something about somebody if the words that they choose for their tombstone. Did he choose them? He did. Okay. He that did does say fact. something. It, and, you know, there are things. There are, are inconsistencies in Jefferson. He was a, uh, an obsessive collector. He collected mm. books. Mm. And he spent— I see why you like him. Mm, that's part of it. <laughs> yeah. It really is. But he took it so far that he was always in debt. Uh, he would buy boxes and boxes of books from libraries all over the world. He learned to read languages simply because he had a, a stack of books in that particular language. Right. And wow. it was his collection that formed the beginning of the collection of the Library of Congress. Oh. But he sold it to the government to get out of debt. Oh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 10,000 volumes. No kidding. And that was the genesis of the Library of Congress. That's pretty amazing. And he made some, some interesting decisions, you know, in the light of the fact that he was a Virginia planter and mm. at a time in this country where people didn't speak of themselves as Americans but as mm. Virginians or oh, right. Massachusettsians. But the Jefferson um, dealt with the slaves that he owned in his will very differently than George Washington. George Washington had all of his slaves freed on his death. Jefferson had his slaves sold to profit the estate because he knew that his family wasn't going to have any money because he mm -hmm. didn't have any money. Because he spent it all on books. He did. Wow. It's a weird, you don't hear that very often. You know, you hear a lot of gambling debts, you hear a lot of you know, whatever, but you don't hear, he lost all his money on books. That's just a, I don't know if anyone else who's gone into debt by book collecting. Yeah, I bought some crazy stuff, but... You not, know what I mean? Yeah, but I'm not in debt uh, currently. That's good. <laughs> that's good. No, when you say, when we talk about weird stuff, that, there were lots of giveaways. So I've got a, a couple, this question may have multiple answers to it, but what were the best giveaways as far as political campaigns went, and what are some of the weirdest? And is there a point where they intersect? Yeah. I, what a great question. Thank you. You're stunning. 
everything that you could give a, a voter, a potential voter, from flat cash bribes to the most <laughs> elaborate of stuffed animal and hat combinations, just an incredible number of, of things given by the campaigns. When the campaigns had more money to spend than they do now, um, they're, they're fun. I mean, and little dumb stuff, pens and mirrors with a campaign slogan etched into them. And we, we saw emery boards in the, in the collection. You know, I have a stack of Goldwater emery boards at home that I use daily. Well, I don't use an emery board daily. I don't right. know why I would say such a thing. No, that's okay. <laughs> Just for routine maintenance. Sure. Yeah. And, of course, the whiskey flask, mm-hmm. you know, given to voters in Andrew Jackson's campaign right. full. Right. <laughs> so I think almost everything has been given away. Lots of ceramics, mugs, yeah. and and now campaigns see that as a cash cow. They mm. see all of what used to be giveaways Oh. You know, hats and scarves and mittens and umbrellas. And, you know, in the collection we have from George H.W. Bush from his inaugural, we have children's size mittens with Bush 88 really? crocheted into the mitten. And they were made by the, the button manufacturer at the request of Barbara Bush because, of course, we do inaugurals on January 20th. Mm-hmm. And it's cold in D.C. on yep. January 20th. So she ordered several thousand of these mittens to be given away so that kids wouldn't have cold hands listening to all of the inaugural festivities. That's pretty amazing. It's funny that that would be a truly American thing is to have this giveaway that, oh, we can make money off that, turn it into a revenue stream. Oh, and absolutely. And now people buy it. Sure. Um, well, but- both Trump and and Clinton have huge stores that sell campaign yeah. memorabilia or and buttons and stickers and magnets. Magnets right. are the new everything. Yeah, there's been a, a Hillary Nutcracker for a long time. Oh, yeah. Someone mentioned that. That's a very popular one. Absolutely. Yeah, we uh, won't be including one of those if she wins. That's that's fair. I think they even have a Trump Chia Pet. If not, they definitely should. Well, we do have an Obama Chia Pet. In, <laughs> it's it's called a Chia Obama, to be fair. There's no pet in the right. title. But we do have one. <laughs> it's it's 50 feet from you. Is it? Oh, I'm, I'm going to take a look before I walk out of here. Uh, so, and also, there were there were also cigarettes given away, too, for free. I mean, oh, ATF yeah. would have had a field day. Were there any firearms given away? Uh, you know, not to my knowledge. I'm sure there were. There had to There, had there to were been. commemorative pieces, I'm sure. But there has to be. Firearms haven't ever, to my knowledge, been a giveaway, except in Texas. That's the, that's the, the line that people draw. <laughs> except in Texas. Have they been given away in Texas? Is that true? I don't know. I just oh. go for the barbecue. They do have delicious barbecue. They do. Uh, now, let me ask you kind of a controversial question. Do you have any pieces from Jefferson Davis? Who's that? that <laughs> <laughs> Where's Aleppo? Um, no, no. Um, Strictly American presidency. Right, United States of United America. United States of America. You bet. Yeah, okay. CSA, no, not no. not so much. It'd be a very small collection, I bet you could put it in the corner of the office. That's true. I don't think he ever ran for pre- for the presidency. I think oh, he was fair. actually elected by acclamation. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if they had any kind of election. That would be really interesting. Do you Good know he out. looks very much like a beardless Lincoln? I didn't know that. He, very much. Hmm. People um, come to things like Antiques Roadshow and stuff, and they say, I have an early picture of Abraham Lincoln. No, Jefferson Davis. (laughs) Sorry. Wrong side. (laughs) Very much so. Um, So it seems to me that you really enjoy that process, the campaign trail process. Oh, absolutely. Is that really what your bread and butter is secretly? Yes. That's where politics comes alive. Yeah. Why do you say that? Because... You get to see the candidates over and over and over again, especially in our incredibly media-saturated world. And they have a chance to say what they really mean at some point, Mm -hmm. what they really think. And if they don't have a cogent thought about something, they will say anything just to get that microphone to resonate with their dulcet tones. Mm -hmm. So... 
I really I like the campaign. So many things come out of the campaign that really get you to a place where you can understand what the candidate's really about. So what's your favorite campaign? Is it the Nixon Kennedy or is it are there other campaign the campaign itself? Sure. I don't I don't really know Nixon Kennedy just because I wasn't uh, mm. a thinking rational adult. I sure. was three in nineteen sixty. So I I guess it would have to be one of the Nixon campaigns. I've enjoyed other campaigns. I've worked on campaigns. I've I've been on the sidelines and things. I've just been on the periphery and I've, you know, stalked candidates and taken pictures of them and it, you know, I loved Jimmy Carter's campaign just because it was so different from all of the the big slick kinds of political stuff. And that was a fun one to watch. And and then when he ran against uh, Ronald Reagan and just tanked it, it, that was hard, hard to see. But a lot of those campaigns have been fun. Well, that was, I mean, that was a landslide victory. I mean, that was almost an encode, wasn't it? Wasn't that the one that was almost unanimous? Yeah, it was pretty tough. Yeah. The Iran hostage crisis and the energy crisis that had come yeah. before. There's the, Carter was really blamed for those. And credit for the Camp David Accords and getting those two guys to shake hands. That, that had really faded quite a bit from public memory. Was that the biggest landslide victory in history outside of no. maybe George Washington? or? Well, George Washington was a landslide. Right, yeah. That was unanimous. <laughs> yeah. um, FDR. FDR mm. cleaned up on, on a couple of his elections. The third and fourth elections were landslides. Uh, but worse than bigger, a bigger margin than the Reagan. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Reagan, Reagan Carter wasn't nearly as landslidey as you think it was. Maybe the second one when he won in '84. Yeah, probably the he ran over Mondale pretty good. Yeah. Um, Nixon, Nixon McGovern mm. in '72 after Watergate, uh, McGovern just barely won South Dakota. I mean, it was it was nuts. You know, it, in terms of the Electoral College, it. I think I really think McGovern only got three. Wow. He might have gotten D.C., but it, it that was a landslide. What do you think of the best? What's the most the best run campaign? It probably in the in the last I, I guess in history. Sure, you, you know this. You know the whole history of it. Um, Clinton. Clinton better mm-hmm. than better than the first Obama campaign. They learned a lot from Clinton. Yeah. And. No, that that was a, a beautifully run campaign, but he had so much problem in the primaries mm. that when he when he got to the general, then absolutely. He, but he he went up against a, a a genuinely conservative war hero, you know, said exactly what he thought. Nobody ever said that he was anything but completely genuine and John McCain. Mm. So John McCain had a huge backing of support. So that wasn't, you know, the Obama campaign Mm -hmm. was beautifully run. Yeah. And extremely intelligent campaign. But the upstart Clinton, the first Clinton campaign with, you know, Stephanopoulos and Mm -hmm. James Carville and they they did some amazing guerrilla kinds of outside the box ways of running a campaign and it was very effective it was smooth so is in regards to your collection what are you looking to acquire right now any historical pieces that you're actively can you talk about what you're actively trying to acquire sure um we have a a policy of not displaying anything that isn't 100 percent authentic Mm. so no replicas no reproductions no no kinds of du- mechanical duplication. And I, I have, just for use in my classroom, a copy of the Chicago newspaper when, after the, the 48 election with Truman, mm. when it, the, the headline said, Dewey, Dewey beats Truman. And the, the picture that we all have in our heads is Truman leaning out of the railroad car and holding up that newspaper and mm. laughing about it. But I'd really like a Dewey Beats Truman newspaper. And then there were, uh, believe it or not, there were George Washington buttons. Hmm. What? Clothing buttons. 
like you would like a big brass button on oh, a, a okay. navy coat or something. Yeah. And they were that size. There are I think there are six or there might be seven different varieties, but they're they're pretty spectacular. And you and you don't have any? No. They're hard to <laughs> they're hard to get a hold of. They're they're difficult to get a hold of and they're expensive to get a hold of. You can you can get some that have been pulled out of the ground with metal detectors for a thousand dollars, but you can just barely see it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm looking for good one of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so can I pitch you a great what I thought? What I think right now, if this, if the, I'm going to pitch you something. You if the wig party existed right now, which they do not, I think powdered wigs as giveaways would be a fantastic way to promote their. I party. think you'd have to, yeah. except you'd have to call them. Wigs. Wigs. That'd be so great. Is that a good one? Would you like a wig? <laughs> I think it'd be great. Well, I think just bringing powdered wigs back just on general principles. General, right. I'm with you on that. I think that's a great idea. Uh, so Now, I take it you're following, the, I mean, we're right in the middle of a campaign. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine you're following this closely. I know school's kind of just started, um, sort of, in a way. Um, but you guys are, are you guys following this really closely? Um, I'm personally following it really closely, but I'm one of those guys who watches all three network nightly newses okay. in a row. So, you know, I'm, it's kind of low tech, but, you know, I just flip on the TV. Sure. And it just washes over me, and I just love it. Yeah. But the kids are not quite as interested huh. in this election. And maybe they'll get better, but I asked my government class, and they're, they're 17 working on being 18. And maybe half of them are 18 now, and mm-hmm. w- only one of them has registered to vote. What? Uh, that's what I said. Extra credit, you can't even give them extra credit for of doing Of course this? I can. Yeah. I can give them extra credit for almost anything, really. <laughs> you should do it. Well, th- that would be totally appropriate. Yeah. Now, we have been sending kids to work at the polls lately. Mm. We've been sending lots of students, so we'll have 40 from school go and work the polls. And that's a really grassroots kind of way to get into an election. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think they need to vote. I think they I need totally to agree. inform themselves about the issues. And, and there have to be issues in California. Definitely. There, there's stuff to vote on always. All the time. And there's always going to be stuff you want to vote against. Something just was passed the other day where it is not you have to pull off actors' ages on any type of online database. That's a California law right now. I think we know why. Uh, <laughs> so let uh, now before we before we end this. Oh, oh, oh! I did one of the question about that. Are you currently acquiring stuff on this campaign, like from Hillary Trump? Are you for your collection? Yes, I'm requi- I'm acquiring some stuff. All right, great. So let's <laughs> we'll check back in with you and see what you what you picked up. So I want to I want to close the show with a couple of they're they're president related but they're history kind of weird things going on and I want to get your opinion on them. So first of all, I know where Aleppo is. <laughs> great. So do I. Uh, the Aleppo Codex. Check that out. Uh-oh. The William Henry Harrison goes down in history as being 32 days, right? Right. Now. There was so he was, let's he was only conscious for eight of those. Well, let's talk about it. so give me the history. It's just a quick recap of his history, and then I have a question for you about that. Sure, um, William Henry Harrison. He uh, he won a battle that nobody really cared about very much because the war was already over. What was that battle called? I'm pretty sure it was the Battle of New Orleans. Battle of New Orleans. Pretty sure in the War of 1812. But the War of 1812, the armistice had already been signed when the Battle of New Orleans took place. So he won a battle that was extra war. Mm-hmm. So there you <laughs> extra go. Extra innings, right? <laughs> right. So he had to have done well at a place called Tippecanoe, the Battle of Tippecanoe, because he was, in fact, called Tippecanoe. You have to do it. It's your namesake. So his running mate, John Tyler, was the, the running mate. So they together were called Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. So, you know, they used to do inaugurals in March in New York, but they had moved to D.C. by then. So he refuses to wear an overcoat for his inaugural address. And he's a talker. So an hour and a half after he started, he finished. And he had a little cough. 
He went to bed, and the cough turned into pneumonia, and pneumonia turned into a coma, and a coma turned into death 32 days later. So he wow. was he was sensible, is the way they described it then, for eight days of his presidency. That's insane. That's I mean, that's really— it, it, I'd wear a coat, or long underwear at least. That's, but what was it, machismo? What is he doing this for? I think it was. Yeah, I think his campaign advisor said, hey, you'll look like a wuss if you're wearing an overcoat. And he— that's insane. It's funny how these things never, how far back this type of stuff goes. You know, people were still idiots back then. But, you know, 40 years after that, he was still incredibly popular. So mm. when Benjamin Harrison, his grandson, ran for the presidency, they used to say that he was too small to fit in his grandfather's hat. Wow. And it's a very distinctive hat, but Benjamin Harrison had adopted that hat as a campaign piece. So he he gave away top hats. We have one of those right. <laughs> with his campaign label inside. So they, the people who didn't want him to be president called him his grandfather's hat. Right. He's, he's running around wearing a coat out when it's cold. Like, who does that? Of course. Not like his tough old grandpa. Uh, now, with, what was kind of cool about that one, just to put a little button on this, is that that threw into question the secession of presidency. Because he died so quickly, and they didn't really have a plan in place that, no, was, that wasn't even figured out until 1967, right? Right. But they had a plan. They had— Well, vice president. Exactly. Yeah. But that's it, though, if he got taken yeah, what out. Yeah, what do you do for Tyler? Do you appoint, then, a yeah. vice president? And who makes the appointment? Right. So it really came to a head when Richard Nixon resigned in 74, because as a result of mm. Watergate and his impending impeachment— he resigned, but he didn't have a vice president because Spiro Agnew had resigned eight months before because of a tax evasion right. rap in Maryland. Right. So there was no sitting vice president except Nixon in his last days as president had appointed Gerald Ford of Michigan to be his VP. So Ford then becomes president after a, a brief period as president. He pardons Nixon for all crimes or crimes committed or alleged um, before his presidency or and during his presidency. So we never see a trial of Richard Nixon. We never see, because Ford, in his own words, said the nation needed to move on. So we moved on, where an unelected president gave a full and complete pardon to a president who may have been, in fact, a crook. I mean, if that doesn't tell you the checks and balance systems out of whack, like where's the judicial branch on this? You know, where is it? How, how is this? I mean, I guess it's constitutional, but that just like that whole scenario you just mentioned is one of the things that that's the problem with the perception is that that's obvious corruption and collusion. Well, Justice Brandeis did say just because something is constitutional, it doesn't mean that it's right. Yeah, exactly. That's why laws change all the time. Uh, so now, now going back, I wanted to get to some weird stuff here because that's what I love. So let's go back to this Tippy Canoe and Taylor Two. Let's take out the Taylor Two part. Now, do you know about the curse of Tippy Canoe on the on the presidency of the White House? I don't. In fact, this is great. Wait, are you serious? No. Let's let's turn the tables. Oh man, tell me I was the story. I was coming to you because I wanted you to fill in some holes because the way I tell it isn't going to be great. Well, I can make stuff up. Well, <laughs> so. The, there's a there's an alleged the curse of Tippy Canoe. You're going to be making stuff up. There's so. an alleged curse of Tippy Canoe that happened during Harrison's presidency, and due to to travesties he committed against the native peoples during that battle, um, the, a curse was put on him and the White House. And so every per, every 20 years, uh, 1840, you know anything that ended in a zero, um, that president is either died in office or been assassinated. Uh, and that curse ended in 2000 with, with Bush, although some could say that, you know, the, the World Trade Centers and the attack there would be a, a, as much of a tragedy as anything else. But th that's the curse of Tippy Canoe. Have you never heard of this? Yeah. You have heard of it? Yeah, I just didn't know it was called the curse of Tippy Canoe. I'm oh. sorry. No, that's all right. Because 1860. Oh, and Garfield in 1880. Yeah, it's all the way and through. And McKinley in 1900. Oh, this is yeah. horrifying. Who was it in 1920? Uh, Harding? What happened to Harding? He, he did impregnate his mistress in the Republican cloakroom. That's something. I don't think that was in the curse, but... Probably not. Mm -mm. 
Okay, 1940? FDR died. He did die. But he died in 44. Okay. He was elected in 40, the election year. Yeah, but he was also elected in 32. Well, I can like. hear from the, the sarcastic tone <laughs> of your voice, you're not that impressed with this. Oh. But it is pretty weird, you have to admit, that all these people, especially because most of the assassination attempts happened in, in those years, and there weren't a lot of people who died outside of those years. It's a little strange. So Robert Lincoln mm-hmm. was present when his father was assassinated. He went to a speech 20 years later given by this then sitting president, James Garfield, and Garfield was assassinated in sight of Robert Lincoln. Robert Lincoln went to his last presidential speech in 1901 when William McKinley was delivering a speech at the Pan-American Exposition when he was assassinated. Robert Lincoln vowed never to attend another presidential speech because he felt that he himself was a curse. That's, I didn't know that, that's amazing. Well, I feel like when I'm not watching my Arizona Cardinals play that, you know, if they lose, it's my fault that it's I your, wasn't. Th- well, I think that three people dying on your while you're attending is a little different. But three I do presidents. Three presidents. Yeah. Uh, and they don't die very often, so mm-hmm. that's that is something. Uh, all right, so let's let's turn the tables on you a little bit here. Let's all talk right. about something else weird. You wanted you mentioned the the Kennedy Lincoln uh, similarities. So now it's my turn act a little snarky and a little a little sarcastic. You tell me what you know about that. I was snarky? No, not really. No, but it's my turn. Evelyn Lincoln. Yeah. The President Kennedy's secretary. She warned not to go to Dallas. I mean, that has to be good advice. That would 2020 she, hindsight. Had she have taken it, <laughs> if taken it, there would have been great advice. So, Lincoln's secretary now, it says that he had a secretary, a man named Kennedy, mm-hmm. and who warned him not to go to the theater that night. Right. Had heard that the play was really bad or something. So, you know, my favorite one of those yeah. is that Kennedy was shot from a warehouse, if you buy the assassination. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, shot from which a warehouse. Which I don't, but go on. Oh, right. I'd like to hear about that. <laughs> right. And Oswald ran and hid in a theater. Yes. Lincoln, of course, was shot in a theater, and his assailant, Booth, right? Yeah. Okay. He ran to a warehouse where he was ultimately captured. Right. But so that that's kind of a good one. That's a good one. There they are both, lots of good they ones. They both had vice presidents named Johnson. One yeah. elected in 1960, one elected in 1860. Both of their vice presidents were Southerners, even though they were both Yankees. Yeah. There's, There's like letter counts in the names. and sure. Both of their assailants are known by all three of their names, Lee, Harvey, Oswald, right. John, Wilkes Booth. Right. Yeah, there's lots of these. These are they're very impressive. A very impressive list that makes you kind of cock your eyebrow. See? That's not snarky at no, all. It's not. I, I'm into this stuff. It's fun. I, I, I think it is fun. I don't know how accurate it is, but I do think it's very fun. Uh, so how can people come? I can't be the only one who can, and your students, you can't be the only ones who take into this impressive collection. What else? Who else can do this? Anyone can do this. It's a public school. and We can't uh, just come walking into a public school. We've got laws here, sir. Very true, and for an excellent reason. But certainly after school hours, and we do try to have a number of community events every year where we invite everybody and, you know, the more people who get a chance to see it, the better I feel about, you know, doing it. And what's the name of your 501c3 should any billionaire backers be listening? That would be the Claremont High School Foundation. You chose not to put your name in it. Oh, my <laughs> name? Yeah, I would. It's your 501c3, right? <laughs> no, it's definitely the schools. We pay, we buy cheerleader Jim uniforms. Jim Fletcher presents the Claremont, oh <laughs> Claremont High School Foundation. Most of what what the foundation does now is non-museum related. Oh. We do our own fundraising outside of and inside as an umbrella with the foundation, but the foundation does everything for the school that isn't funded through the school itself. Wow. Um, well, if any billionaire listeners out there, please give a little bit of dough this way. Uh, or multimillionaire. Inc- or multimillionaire, <laughs> right. Why exclude anyone <laughs> below the billionaire tier? <laughs> I'm with you on that. Uh, well, Fletch, Jimmy Jam, Jim, Mr. Fletcher, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been 
educational. I've had an amazing time. I really have. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening to this program. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted by me, Daniel J. Glenn. This week's episode was produced by Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. To find us on the web, which I highly recommend, go to fascinatingnouns.com where you can check out uh, the social media links at the bottom of the page. I implore you to pay attention to two very specific links, the Pinterest page, pinterest.com backslash fascinatingnoun, as well as the YouTube link where you can check out the entire collection, both things that we talked about and things we didn't, as well as some very fun videos about memorabilia that you may not have known about. FascinatingNouns.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.